Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're wrapping up our series on the Battle of Berlin and the fall of Nazi Germany. Most of you know by now this is the concluding episode of an ongoing series, so if you want to hear the rest of the story, you need to go all the way back to episode 62. But now I need to thank Jim from Redding, California, and Larry and Wendy Baker from Bunbury, Australia for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. But now, the fall of fascism and the creation of a new world order. It's the story of the fall of Berlin. All right, we stopped last month's show right after Hitler's body was burned in a shallow fire pit on April 30th. Now, I could waste two hours trying to think of a great summation of where we are in this battle, but John Keegan has already done it, so I'll let him start us off today. Quote, Once the flames burning Hitler and his wife had died down, the remains of the bodies were buried in a shell crater nearby from which they were disinterred by the Russians on May 5th. Shells were falling in the garden and chancellery area, and room-to-room fighting was raging in all the government buildings in the government district. Late in the evening of April 30th, Goebbels appointed Reich Chancellor at the same time as Hitler nominated Admiral Donitz to succeed him as head of state, tried to make contact with the Russians in order to arrange a truce, which, because he was deluded, he thought it was even possible. It was not. Early in the morning of May 1st, General Krebs, the army chief of staff and a Russian speaker, went forward through the burning ruins to treat with a senior Soviet officer. It was Chukov, now the commander of the 8th Guards Army, but who two years earlier had commanded the Russian defenders in the siege of Stalingrad. Stalin was contacted by telephone, but he tired quickly of the conversation and abruptly declared the only terms were unconditional surrender, and then he went to bed. Even the Russian commander, Zhukov and Chukov, battle-hardened veterans, couldn't believe the speed at which Stalin cut off negotiations. Many would die because Stalin wanted to get a few extra hours of sleep. Still, Chukov and Zukov kept talking with Krebs for the rest of the morning and on into the afternoon end. Quote. Meanwhile, for the men still defending Berlin, the news of Hitler's suicide was deeply troubling. Siegfried Knapp recalls how he felt. Quote, I was stunned. For some reason, it had never occurred to me that Hitler would even commit suicide. If he planned to commit suicide, why had he not done it long ago when it was obvious the war was lost? Why had so many people had to die so senselessly right up to the moment the Russians were knocking on the bunker door? Such selfishness was unbelievable to me, end quote. All across the Berlin metropolitan area, the men fighting on the front line heard about Hitler's death, and with his death, German morale collapsed. I mean, after all, many of these men had vowed to fight for Hitler personally, and now Hitler was dead. Rudy Averdeek explains the effect the news of Hitler's suicide had on the men in his unit. Quote, On April 30th, around midnight, I switched on the radio. After some solemn, stately music came on, the announcement that the Fuhrer had fallen in battle in Berlin that day was presented. All our will to continue resisting the enemy now vanished. Our only thought was to escape to the Americans. End quote. After Hitler's death, desertions which were already bad, skyrocketed. Most of the men who kept fighting were hardcore fascist fanatics who took their vow to fight on to the end deathly serious. Large numbers of normal soldiers and even the Hitler youth who were still alive ceased to fight. Siegfried Knapp was in the middle of the final battle on the morning of May 1st. This is what he saw, quote, 
In the morning, General Krebs gave his consent to a breakout during the night of May 1st. It was now too late for a mass central-led breakout in one direction, so breakouts were to be made individually by each division beginning at 9.30 p.m. Veedling also gave each division commander and each soldier the choice to either join the breakout action or go into Russian captivity. General Veedling and I learned that SS Brigade Monka intended to attempt to break out at 9.30 p.m. in a northerly direction. Veedling decided that our corps staff would join this group and he instructed me to have our staff ready at 8 o'clock. We would have to fight our way through the Soviets just to even link up with Monka's men. The Reich's Chancellery personnel also intended to join this group. Krebs and Bergdorf decided to stay and take their own lives. During my walks through the chancellery this day, I saw wounded people everywhere who were being cared for by Army Medical Corpsmen and by Red Cross nurses. SS men were helping themselves to such delicacies as canned sausages and soda or beer. At this point, General Veedling wanted to surrender, but Knapp did not. He continues his story. I told the general I would like to take my leave, since I did not want to surrender, but according to the arrangements we had made earlier, would rather take part in the breakout with Brigade Monka. Veedling turned on me in a terrible outburst of fury. This was the only time he had ever become angry at me, apparently because he felt that I had deserted him on the return from Fuhrer headquarters, although he did not say this directly. But he certainly had no right to accuse a soldier who had survived as much combat and been wounded as many times as I had of cowardice, and I told him so in rather explicit terms. We were probably both on the verge of nervous collapse. The human system can only take so much, and certainly we had put our systems to the test. In any case, he forbade me to leave the bunker before 10 p.m. Until then, according to him, he still needed me. But of course, it would be too late for me to join the Munka group then. So with this order, Veedling sealed my fate and prevented me from trying to escape Russian captivity. I was still soldier enough to follow orders instead of deserting to try to break out on my own, although anger raged inside me. This is the fate of a soldier, obeying even the most hopeless order that will hurt your own fate tremendously. End. Quote. Meanwhile, the mass graves continued to overflow, a sort of inverse blessing. Instead of vats of overflowing wine, the German cities overflowed with their own putrid dead. Again, Helmut Altner provides the details. Quote, the whole barracks seemed to have become a field hospital. Some medical orderlies are carrying out the dead on stretchers to the square and casually tipping them out on the ground where the bushes around the war memorial have been chopped down to make room for the mass graves. A big rectangular grave is already half full of dead laid out like boards, one row lengthways and the next sideways, their arms and legs stiff with rigor mortis. Their families would never know where they were buried, end quote. A novelist later tried to describe the terrible scenes of May 1st. Dr. Carl Fisher had been working for two days straight without respite when he decided to step out of the makeshift hospital of the opera basement and clear his mind. When he had gone to the basement two days before, the street had, of course, been damaged, but what he saw when he stepped outside was a lunar landscape of ruins. Everything was gray ash. It was thick, tangible in the air. And here and there amid the sand dune-like dust were bloating, dismembered bodies. Handsome Nordic faces were deformed and swollen like basketballs. From the back of the basketball head, a jagged hole leaked red blood and gray brains. The brains looked like uncooked shrimp. A terrible stench, like a thousand roadkill animals, assaulted Dr. Fisher's nostrils. He lit a cigarette and took a stroll. 
Everywhere he saw flashes of tragedies, German families dying out, disfigured bodies with grimacing mouths stacked in pyramids at the bottom of a pool-shaped rectangle. Carl swore he saw one face's mouth working like a fish out of water, the living corpse's eyes staring senselessly even as the mouth worked at the air. He took a few more steps and through a blown-out window, Dr. Fisher saw a half-naked woman crying, weeping, while other women tried to console her. Still, the doctor walked on. He heard something from a doorway, and Carl peeked inside. There he saw SS men feasting, drinking champagne straight from the bottle and gorging on tins of food they had laid up. Still, Dr. Fisher walked on. Then he saw it. In the middle of the street, there was a concrete eagle in typical fascist form, wings stretched out in perfect linear symmetry, the bird's face cold and hateful. The eagle had fallen from one of the many disintegrating buildings and had broken apart, the pieces still close together, like fallen headstones in a country graveyard. Below the eagle's gripping talons, there were the words, To the German people. Carl whispered the words, To the Deutschen Volk. Then he looked up and saw five bodies slowly undulating on lampposts. Running out of rope, the deserters had been hung with power lines. Their bodies were turning gray and distending. Glancing back down the street, Dr. Fisher saw two corpsmen walk into a nearby cellar and come out with a body. The two workers gingerly tossed the body into a rectangular mass grave, without malice, without enjoyment, with the practiced acceptance of men who have worked the same job for more than a decade. Then the two medical orderlies returned to the cellar and came back out with yet another body. On and on the men worked, plunking the white bodies of women, preteens, and men into the pit. Dr. Carl shook his head while he slowly streamed out a line of smoke from his mouth. And then these lines from Richard III, unbidden, came rushing out of his smoke-steaming lips. The trees in our country are all withered, and rushing shells fright the fixed stars of heaven. The pale-faced moon looks bloody on the earth, and lean-looked prophets whisper fearful change. Rich men look sad, and ruffians dance and leap, the one in fear to lose what they enjoy, the other to enjoy by rage and war. End quote. It was on May 1st that ordinary Germans found out about Hitler's death. Of course, it was filtered to them in a lie. The official account didn't mention Hitler had blown his brains out. A pamphlet was distributed throughout Berlin, which read thus, quote, It is announced from Fuhrer headquarters that our Fuhrer Adolf Hitler fell for Germany at his command post at the Reich Chancellery this afternoon while fighting against Bolshevism to his last breath. On April 30th, the Fuhrer appointed Grand Admiral Donitz as his successor. He assumes the position of head of state and Reich's president. Reich's minister, Goebbels, was appointed Reich's chancellor, end quote. Literally a day before, soldiers were still being told that Vink was coming to relieve them, that he would be there by May 3rd. They were told Hitler had secret miracle weapons that would save them all. Now they saw the awful truth. Of all the lies, both big and small, no one was coming to save them. The more cynical Berliners looked around their shattered streets and sardonically whispered, For all this, we thank the Fuhrer. That was the day nationalism and right-wing thought died in Europe. Day zero, the end of everything, had finally arrived. Later that day, at 7 p.m., SS General Krukenberg found out about Hitler's suicide. At that time, the truth of his situation shook him to the core of his beliefs. He writes, quote, I just found out that Hitler committed suicide. I met with SS General Ziegler, who told me that for several days no one had expected Vink's 12th Army to break through and relieve my men who were dying like flies for Hitler and these same officers. Ziegler also told me that the negotiations with the Western Allies had failed. 
We had been deceived from above on all these points for several days. All the sacrifices made by the troops had been worthless. How many of these brave Hitler youth, their young hands free from any crime, been dismembered and decombusted just so Hitler could live a few more hours? We have been abused in the worst possible way. How was I going to tell my men when I could have shot myself for my own gullibility in believing my leaders? At the meeting, SS General Munka directed us to follow General Viedling's order to pierce the Soviet encirclement in small groups and move in a northeasterly direction. At the time, it was impossible for us to get information about the battle situation taking place in all other areas of the city. We had no intelligence. Everything was now on the move. Each of the little groups trying to break out had to make its own reconnaissance. There was no central direction. A little after midnight, I abandoned my command post and, accompanied by my French SS volunteers, we attempted to break out, end quote. All of these decisions I've been describing only affected the men fighting in a few blocks of the central government district. Elsewhere, the fighting went on. The officers explained to the men that their oath to Hitler was also binding towards Admiral Donitz, his chosen successor. Therefore, the fighting must go on to the end. An eyewitness saw scraped together battle groups limping out of a barracks to once again fight the Russians. Quote, it is gradually becoming dark. The newly assembled combat teams are streaming out through the barrack gates to go back into the fire again as stragglers, refugees, and women come in seeking shelter in the barracks. Many of those now returning have been here before, perhaps only hours ago, have been shot up in combat or have turned round on their way out and have come back. The last, a sort of demi-desertion, is not easy for a few soldiers or Waffen SS men follow each group to prevent them breaking up before they reach their combat destination. If necessary, they stop them with their weapons." End quote. SS Captain Funet was fighting near the Chancellery, and this is what he saw. Quote, all night and all morning of May 1st, the storm of red assaults beat against us with desperate violence, but we were determined to respond with defiance. The Red Infantry was reinforced and launched waves of attacks using tanks for support. We let the T-34 Panzers approach to fire at point-blank range while pinning down the infantry with our assault rifles. The Russian troops didn't get far. Then the Soviets concentrated their tanks 300 meters away, and we could see the infantry scurrying around behind them like termites in rotten wood, like worms in a bait box. We have to wait until they are quite close, so close that several missed shots could open up the way and cause the entire front to collapse. The fate of the battle depended on the outcome of every attack. The Reich's Chancellery was fiercely defended. During a particularly violent attack, a T-34 succeeds in passing and is only knocked out 30 meters behind our first positions. For several moments, a terrible anxiety seizes us, as if an abyss has opened beneath our very feet. Then there is a second explosion, and the intruding panzer is immobilized. In the afternoon, the situation worsens. Our building, practically intact when we occupied it, has now fallen into ruins. And if the ground floor is still holding, long strips of floorboards are hanging down to the street, a perfect target for communist flamethrowers. We try to get these awkward pieces of wood to fall into the street, but without tools and while under enemy fire, our men give up. Getting rid of one or two boards is no way to have your head blown off. After several attempts, the Reds set fire to the hanging wood. We haven't got a drop of water. We have no choice but to retreat. It's the same story as the last three years of this entire war. We fall back to the main security office, which of course is in ruins, but its cellars still provide useful shelter. Soon a violent infantry fight starts up. The Reds advanced, but were repulsed. Finally, they managed to gain a little ground, but our front line held out. That night, in a cellar lit only by candles, I award iron crosses to my comrades. The night was relatively calm. 
It was my last night as a free man. The next day, a Luftwaffe officer tells me the battle is over and all the Germans are surrendering. No, I refuse to believe it. My men and I make our way to the chancellery through the subway tunnels. We find a ladder and peek up through a subway grill. It's hard to see, but I force my face into the bars, comically squeezing my lips into the steel rebar like an absurd American cartoon in order to see the seat of the Nazi state. Then I finally get a good view, and my eyes take in what my body rejects. As far as I can see are Russians, Soviet vehicles in all directions. It really is all over. Later that night we are captured, and a drunken Russian put a pistol to my friend Roger's head and blew his brains out. His body collapsed as if he was hit by a heavyweight boxer. Knockout! The body just crumbled. My war was over. It was just dumb luck that I wasn't the one to get a bullet in my brain. End quote. That night a new proclamation was spread throughout the fighting men garrisoning the few square miles of Berlin still held by Axis forces. It was from Grand Admiral Donitz himself, and this is what it read, quote, German men and women, soldiers of the German armed forces, our Fuhrer Adolf Hitler has fallen. Conscious of the responsibility I assume leadership of the German people at this deeply fateful time. My first task is to save the German people from destruction by the Bolshevist enemy. The fighting will continue only long enough for this. So far and so long as the achievement of this aim is hindered by the British and Americans, we must also continue to defend ourselves against them and fight on. End quote. The men defending Berlin looked at each other with faces of disbelief, their mouths hanging open, blinking at each other. They really want us to keep fighting? Look around. The city was tangibly crumbling around them. Most of the men had already surrendered, were actively trying to surrender. The battle was over, but still the fight, especially for a small minority of fanatics, wore on. One bedraggled unit was addressed by their wild-eyed company commander who explained to them in fanatical tones why the fight had to keep going. We will have peace with the Western powers within the next few days. Then it will only be against the Bolshevists that we fight. And that will not go on much longer with them, only until the summer. And then you can all go home, and the oath to our glorious Fuhrer is transferred to his successor. Whoever wants to desert will be shot. The war goes on! He said it like that, like he was happy. The war goes on! As if we were talking about a carnival, graciously overstaying for a few days, to accommodate all the happy customers who want to attend the delightful event. Despite... Admiral Donitz's announcement, both small and large groupings of German soldiers and civilians attempted to break out of Berlin. Harry Schweizer was one of them. He was working in the zoo flak tower when the breakout order came in. Keep in mind, every German in this city was surrounded. The only way out was by fighting, sneaking, or bluffing. Anyway, this is what happened to Harry. Quote, at about 2300 hours on the evening of May 1st, an announcement came over the loudspeakers to prepare for a breakout from the tower. We quickly put our things together. There was not much, just a haversack, water bottle, weapons and ammunitions, and an emergency ration of chocolate. We three waited together until several thousand had left the tower, not wanting to be among the first to leave, as we did not know what awaited us outside. Several of the older soldiers, some of them highly decorated, remained behind as they said it was all the same to them if they met their fate there or elsewhere. As we mixed in the stream of people and emerged outside, it seemed to be quite peaceful with only the occasional shot nearby coming out of the dark night, and we were not fired on. We could not understand how we could get out of the bunker so easily. Somehow, this stream of all kinds of servicemen, without any leadership, found its way to Spandau via the Olympic Stadium. 
Apart from a few shots at the Olympic Stadium, we reached a newly built part of Spandau without any interference from the enemy. It was unbelievable. On the morning of May 2nd, combat teams were formed to fight their way over the Charlatan Bridge through the Russians occupying Spandau to the Elba River in the west. We joined one of these teams as we were determined to get through to the Americans. Our propaganda had made us afraid of falling into Russian hands. The Russians defended their positions on the opposite side of the Charlatan Bridge, but we were able to get across with the help of tanks and other heavy weapons and to reach the street leading to the west. The buildings on either side of the street were occupied by Russians, and we were fired on from the rooftops. It was difficult to go on, and eventually we had to seek shelter in the entrance to a building. We had a girl traveling with us in our little group, and we kept her between us to give her the maximum protection. We were very lucky, as several times shots from rifles or machine guns sprayed the road surface close to us. At midday, we sought shelter in a cellar with some of the other soldiers also waiting for nightfall to go on. Wounded were crying out with pain in the yard behind the cellar and begging us to shoot them, but it was absolutely impossible to do anything for them without exposing oneself to heavy fire. We waited until dark and then got as far as a residential area without attracting fire. Vehicles were racing along the streets with soldiers hanging onto them like bunches of grapes. We tried to get on a vehicle several times in order to get through to the west quicker, but it was just not possible. Between us and the residential area was a big open space that we had to cross if we were going to get any further. We started crawling across it on our stomachs, but shots came towards us from the buildings up ahead, so we crept back again. We could see that we no longer had a chance of getting through, so we threw our weapons away and waited for things to happen. Dora, the girl who was escaping with us, put on a Red Cross armband in the hope of fooling the Russians. I gave her my parents' address, as she had no one in Berlin to whom she could turn. After my time in captivity, I learned from my parents that she had come to see them. During the first part of my captivity, I could not get her out of my mind. I was always thinking of her, such as young love. On the morning of May 3rd, some civilians came into our cellar and begged us to give ourselves up. They were afraid that if soldiers were found in the building, the civilians would suffer for it. We said goodbye to Dora and left the cellar. A big Russian with a pistol in his hand took us. We had to walk ahead of him with our hands up. Whenever we passed dead Russian soldiers on the street, he would say something in Russian that we did not understand. We were terribly frightened that he was going to shoot us. We were taken to a cellar that already contained some captured German soldiers. Frightened rumors were making the rounds. Whoever had this or that uniform was going to be shot straight away, etc., but nothing happened. After a short while, an officer appeared and climbed onto a table. He said the war was over, Hitler was dead, and we would now just be registered and then sent home. However, it did not work out that way, and we began our period of bitter captivity. End quote. Harry was later taken prisoner by the Soviets. Too frail to work, he was released a few months later. He was one of the lucky ones. The fate of many prisoners wasn't so lucky. Giles McDonough, in his excellent book, After the Reich, provides the details, quote, The Russians made no distinction between a prisoner of war and a civilian. Both were liable to arrest and to be shipped to the Soviet Union to work or rot in labor camps. On June 29, 1945, the Soviet Union was said to have between 4 and 5 million Germans within its borders, helping to rebuild its cities. The imprisonment of German and other Axis POWs in Russia was marked by callous chaos. Huge numbers of Germans were sent east, including civilians, scientists, and technicians. In all, a total of 1,094,000 captive Axis soldiers died in the Russian labor camps. Keep in mind this doesn't include the captives who were scarred for life as a result of their imprisonment. 
Wilhelm Munke, who had led the defense of the government quarter in Berlin, was taken prisoner on May 2nd and was incarcerated by the Soviets for 10 years. Afterwards, he was released and returned to Germany. He died in his bed 46 years later. For the men who survived, returning home was often a nightmare. Many of their women had contempt for them. A large number had lived as mistresses with American men. Many German authors described the terrible return of the POWs. Wolfgang Bockhardt masterfully paints the somber truth in a stark play called Outside the Door. In the play, an officer named Beckman returns from captivity to find his wife in bed with another man. He tries to drown himself in the Elba River, but the river rejects him. He becomes part of the mass of alienated German men whose defeat and complicity in crime has rendered them outlaws even to their own women. The main character's wife says, Your Germany is outside in the rainy night on the street. Beckman carries the responsibility of a small massacre committed by his own men. He wants to rid himself of it. Beckman looks for his parents. They are dead. They had been Nazis and had been thrown out on the streets at the end of the war. They also are outside the door. They had preferred death to denazification. Doors are slammed in his face as he looks for work, as he looks for women, as he looks for any compassion. The play ends with this quote. That is life. There is a man, and the man comes to Germany, and the man freezes. He starves, and he limps. He comes home to Germany. He comes home, and there is his bed, occupied by another man. A door slams, and he is left outside. A man comes home to Germany. He looks for food, for basic help, but an officer laughs in his face and goes back to eating his nice meal. A door slams, and the man is outside again. A man comes home to Germany. He looks for work, but the manager is a coward, and the door slams, and he is outside again. A man comes home to Germany. He looks for his parents, but they are dead, killed themselves with natural gas, and all the neighbors can think to say is, what a waste of natural gas! We could have eaten for a month with that natural gas! And the door slams, and the man is outside again. There is just the street, and man lies down in the street and dies. In the old days, cigarette butts and orange peels lay in the street. Today, people lay there. It doesn't mean a thing. Today in Germany, people pass the death of a German veteran in the street without caring. They're bored, resigned, sickened, indifferent, so indifferent. And the dead man feels that his death was like his life, pointless, insignificant, gray. Oh, where shall I go? How shall I live? With whom will I live? For what will I live? No country, no God, nothing. We are betrayed terribly betrayed then at the very end of the play the main character on an empty black stage his emaciated body bathed in the yellow glow of a spotlight addresses the audience directly where is god why doesn't he speak answer me why are you silent will none of you answer will no one answer why won't you answer me then the spotlight shuts off and the curtains fly down the theater's dim lights peek back to life, and the play is over. There is no answer to it at all. Anyway, after a few hours of trying to stop German breakouts, the Soviets began to target key choke points along the path of the breakout attempts. Bridges were a favorite target of Soviet artillery. By the end of the day, it was almost suicide to attempt to flee the city along the main routes. An eyewitness recalls how his attempt to leave the city turned into a human body slip and slide. Quote, underfoot are the bodies of those who had not made it as far as the bridge. Sad their luck, 
Let's hope ours is better, for in a minute or two it will be our turn to race across. Every man on our lorry is firing his weapon, machine gun, machine pistol, or rifle. We roll onto the bridge roadway. The lorry picks up speed and races across the open space. It's not a straight drive, but a sort of obstacle race, swerving to avoid the trucks, tanks, and cars which are lying wrecked and burning on the bridge roadway. There's a sickening feeling as we bump over bodies lying stretched out, hundreds of them along the length of the bridge, end quote. A few episodes ago, I told you a story about the philosopher Oswald Spangler, how he warned the Nazis when they came to power that Germany was not an island, that what other peoples think has an impact on the German nation, no matter how nationalist it is. In your own life, if you put yourself outside of a certain standard of human behavior, a certain moral law that our venerable religious tradition, as well as our modern philosophers such as Michael Walzer and William Lane Craig, maintain all men possess, you will find yourself outside the door, beyond the pale, an outlaw and a second king. What Spangler said to the German nation, I say to you as an individual listener, you are not an island. Some things truly are wrong, truly are evil. Don't put yourself beyond the door. You won't like it out there, in the rain, in the streets. And the women will hate you. Anyway, by this time, the battle was nearing the end. One anonymous woman remembered the streets simply filled with Russian equipment. This is how she described it. Quote, As I write this, it's Tuesday, May 1st. The rockets are singing overhead. The oily drone of Russian airplanes. Long rows of Stalin organs are stacked in the school across the street. They howl and shriek and wail so loud when they go off that they nearly break our eardrums as we stand in line for water. The sky was full of bloody clouds this morning. Smoke and steam rose over the center of town. The lack of water brings us out of our holes. People come creeping from all sides, miserable, dirty civilians, women with gray faces, mostly old. The young ones are kept hidden. End quote. At the same time, negotiations between Krebs and Chukov had gone on all day, and Chukov had had enough. John Keegan picks up the story, quote, In the early afternoon of May 1st, Chukov told Krebs that the new Nazi government's powers were limited to announcing Hitler's death, declaring Himmler a traitor, and accepting complete capitulation. To his own forces, Chukov sent the order, quote, Pour on the shells, no more talk, storm the place, end quote. At 6.30 p.m., every Soviet gun and rocket launcher in Berlin opened fire on the unsubdued area. The eruption burst any illusions the military and political leaders in the bunker had that they might be able to negotiate their way out of the situation. About two hours later, Goebbels and his wife, who had just killed her own six children with poison, committed suicide in the Chancellery Garden, close to Hitler's grave. Their bodies were cremated and buried nearby. The rest of the bunker staff organized themselves into escape parties and made their way through the burning ruins towards the outer suburbs. Meanwhile, the Soviet troops pressed inward behind the continuous salvos of artillery fire. Early on the morning of May 2nd, major German units began independently to request ceasefires. At 6 a.m., Wiedling, the commander of Fortress Berlin, surrendered to the Russians and was brought to Chukov's headquarters, where he dictated the capitulation announcement. The announcement read thus, quote, On April 30, 1945, the Fuhrer took his own life, and thus it is that we who remain, having sworn him an oath of loyalty, are left alone. According to the Fuhrer's orders, you German soldiers were to fight on for Berlin, in spite of the fact that ammunition had run out, and in spite of the general situation, which makes further resistance on our part senseless. My orders are to cease resistance forthwith, end quote. 
At 3 p.m. on the afternoon of May 2nd, Soviet guns ceased to fire on Berlin. A great enveloping silence fell. Russian troops cheered and shouted, breaking out food and drink. The peace which surrounded them was one of the tomb. About 125,000 Berliners died in the siege, a significant number by suicide. Tens of thousands more died in the great migration of Germans from east to west. In April, when 8 million Germans left their homes in the Russian-occupied east to seek refuge from the Red Army in the Anglo-American occupation zones, the cost to the Red Army of its victory in the siege of Berlin was terrible. Between April 16th and May 8th, the Russians had lost more than 300,000 men killed, wounded, and missing, 10% of their strength and the heaviest casualties suffered by the Red Army in any battle of the war. Moreover, the last sieges of the cities of the Reich were not over. For example, Breslau held out until May 6, its siege costing the Russians 60,000 more men. By then, the war and what remained of Hitler's empire was almost over. 10 million German military prisoners, 8 million German refugees, 3 million Balkan fugitives, 2 million Russian prisoners of war, slave and forced laborers by the millions washed over Europe. In Britain and America, crowds gathered in streets and town squares on May 8th to celebrate VE Day. In Europe, the vanquished and their victims scratched for food and shelter in the ruins the war had wrought. By the morning of May 2nd, the Battle of Berlin and the war itself were practically over. It was one of the first days when people woke up and they no longer heard the sounds of war riding the audio waves of the city. Don't get me wrong, there was still sporadic fighting outside the city and even a few fighting strong points left inside the city, but basically the Battle of Berlin was essentially over. At least it seemed that way to the terrified civilians living in the city. One Berliner narrates the pathetic scene of total defeat with these words, quote, Outside, it's cold and overcast. Today, I stood at the pump for a long time in a fine rain, waiting for water. Little fires burning all around in the trampled gardens, men's voices singing to an accordion. A woman in front of me is wearing men's shoes. She has a scarf on her head, covering half her face. Her eyes are swollen from crying. But for the first time since I've been standing in line for water, things are calm. No rockets. The sky is still smoldering yellow. The previous night has been full of fires, but there's no more gunfire in Berlin. Things are quiet. We stand there in the pouring rain, speaking quietly and saying little. The pump creaks. The lever squeals. Russians fill canister after canister. We wait. The pathetic figure in front of me reports in a monotone that no, she hasn't been raped yet. She and a few neighbors managed to lock themselves in the basement, but now her husband has come back from his unit. So she has to take care of him, hide him, find food and water for him. She can't just think about herself anymore. A red-cheeked Russian walks down our lines playing an accordion and calling out, Get la kaput! Goebbels kaput! Stalin is good! He laughs and cackles one of his mother curses, slaps a comrade on the shoulder and shouts in Russian, even though the people in line won't understand a thing. Look at him, a Russian soldier, and he's marched from Moscow to Berlin. They're all so proud of their victory, and they're bursting at their buttons. Even they are amazed that they made it this far. We swallow it all, stand in line, and wait. I try to imagine what the Russians think about all these things, lying around unprotected and abandoned. There are deserted apartments in every building that are theirs for the taking, basements with whatever is stowed in them. There's nothing in this city that isn't theirs if they want it. The problem is there's simply too much. They can no longer take it all in, this abundance. They nonchalantly grab the objects that catch their eye, then lose them or pass them on. They haul things away and then discard them as soon as they become a burden. Everything we have 
even our bodies are theirs, end quote. Meanwhile, in the Fuhrer bunker, two of Hitler's key staff members had decided to take their own lives. Sometime in the early morning hours of May 2nd, General Krebs and General Bergdorf sat down side by side and swallowed the barrels of their Lugers. Their bodies were found sitting there, right outside the Situation Room, as if Hitler might call them back in again for yet another military conference. A fair number of SS officers joined Krebs and Bergdorf in taking their own lives. Such was the fate of Captain Schilda, the commander of Hitler's SS Praetorian Guard at the Reich Chancellery. What was it like for the Berlin defenders who broke out of the city? As Radio Sergeant Rudy Averdeek's commander told his troops, There is only the choice between surrender to the Americans and surrender to the Russians, which really wasn't a choice at all. Rudy recalls his own capture and imprisonment on May 2nd like this, quote, After we received rations, we drove to the west towards the Americans. I had to leave my trusty APC behind for lack of fuel and drive on in our radio truck. We stopped again some time later. In front of us was an Air Force convoy that had already sent an envoy to the Americans. Then a vehicle arrived with large white flags on it and an American officer inside. He took the pistols from our officers, then waved us on. At 18.30 hours, we drove across the American lines into captivity. We gave up our weapons on the way. Most of us lost our watches, too. Some of the Americans were drunk, apparently from looted schnapps. Liberated Poles were firing pistols and taking the farmers' cows from their stalls. It was mildly comforting to see that the people still waved to us. We spent the night on an airfield. Next day, we drove in our vehicles to a meadow where we joined 7,000 men at an assembly point. We were to remain there for a while, so we pitched our tents and settled in. At midnight on May 7th, Germany capitulated unconditionally. The war was over. End quote. Later in the day, on May 2nd, towards nightfall, the Soviet writer Konstantin Simonov was taken on a tour of one of the three impregnable flak towers that were key to the German defense system. This is what he saw, quote, In the flak tower, there was no more light, so Simonov and his escort made their way by torchlight. A lieutenant brought him to a small concrete room. On the bunk, with his eyes open, lay a dead general, a tall man of about forty-five with short hair and a handsome, calm face. His right hand lay alongside his body, clutching a pistol. With his left hand, he held by the shoulders the body of a young woman lying next to him. The woman lay with her eyes closed, young and beautiful, wearing a white English blouse with short sleeves and a gray uniform skirt. The general was dressed out in parade style with an iron shirt, high boots, and high-collared jacket. Between the general's legs stood a bottle of champagne, one-third full. Simonov saw many bodies as he made his way through that tower of carnage. The stink had already begun to permeate the building, and Simonov was forced to breathe through his shirt, giving him a turtle-like appearance as he carefully made his way through the utilitarian concrete installation. Just hours before, he would have been executed if he had tried to come to the door of the tower. Now he was the master of the building. There is a lesson about true power in such a situation. Do not be fooled by the sociologists and the political scientists. Power is not and never has been influence. Let prom queens and extroverted puppets confuse the two. Power is force and nothing else. And it always has been. Outside the tower, in the streets of the last bastion of fascism, a curious mix of Soviet soldiers and German survivors mingled outside. Sometimes a single German soldier was allowed a moment of peace. Other times, German soldiers were rounded up and sent in cattle trains for Stalin's work camps, from whence many never returned. One eyewitness describes the denouement of the Reich like this, quote, 
I had a terrible mass of impressions. Fire and smoke. Smoke was everywhere. There were huge crowds of prisoners, faces full of tragedy. And the grief on many faces is not only personal suffering, but also that of citizens of a destroyed country. Prisoners were of all kinds and walks of life. Policemen, clerks, old men and schoolboys, almost children. A sad month to reach puberty. It was almost a death sentence. Many of the men are walking with their wives, beautiful young women, some of whom are laughing and trying to cheer up their husbands. One young soldier with two children, a boy and a girl. The people around are very nice to the prisoners. Faces are sad. They give them water and bread. This overcast, cold and rainy day is undoubtedly the day of Germany's collapse in the smoke. Among the blazing ruins, among hundreds of corpses littering the streets, some of the dead have been crushed by tanks and look like toothpaste tubes with all the paste squeezed out, flattened human packaging dripping detritus. I saw a dead old woman, her head resting against the wall, sitting on a mattress near a front door with an expression of quiet and everlasting grief. Later on, the same eyewitness saw Russian soldiers making fires in the destroyed and crumbling entrance halls of the still imposing Reichstag. They rattled their cooking pans and opened tins of condensed milk with bayonets. They had the rough hands and manners of peasants. They even looked like peasants, with misshapen teeth and horrible haircuts. And yet they were the masters of the center of the German state and the symbolic heart of the German people. Truly, this was the end of something. The fall of Berlin had a tremendous impact on the culture, politics, and worldview of the entire Western world. But don't take my word for it. John Weiss describes the repercussions of the fall of Berlin and the end of the war against fascism this way, quote, Pan-Germanism and its Nazi variations were utterly destroyed by the war. Eleven million Germans fled or were driven out of Eastern Europe when faced with the prospect of falling into the hands of the Red Army and local resistance groups. Eastern Germany, including the ancient bastion of ultra-conservatism, East Prussia, was taken from Germany and handed over to communist rule. The power of the Soviet Union, especially after it acquired nuclear weapons, meant that German conservatives and right-wing radicals, even if they came to power, could never again hope to renew their vision of a Teutonic East. The chances of a right-wing revival were small. The autocratic elites who had dominated Germany before Weimar and had subsequently helped Hitler to power were crushed and scattered. Hitler's lower middle class supporters had gained nothing but misery from the war years. Vichy also had fallen with the Nazis, as had Austrian fascism. After 1945, there would still be many who felt nostalgia for the traditional values of a now-dead social order. There would even be those who longed once again to hear the iron tread of the radical right. But with very few exceptions in Western Europe as well as in the United States and Great Britain, all significant political decision-making was now in the hands of liberals of the right, center, or left. What we call conservatism in Europe would increasingly become, as in the United States, ossified 19th century classical liberalism with some remnants of older cultural tradition. The unintended consequences of the conservatives' last stand against social modernization, liberal democracy, and some measure of social reform were the disasters of war. The history of European conservatism had ended. End quote. And so the Battle of Berlin in World War II not only ended Germany as a great power, it also brought an end to a great tradition of Western thought, conservatism. It's the reason why Republicans go to the mat for tax breaks, 
but don't care too much about high crime. It's the reason why socialist and liberal ideas are given full expression across the West, but conservative ideas and even conservative institutions that are not overtly political, institutions such as a masculine-dominated family or traditional Christian churches are at best isolated or worse, actively suppressed. They are tainted by a supposed association with fascism. And so there is you, an average man, all the institutions around you, according to John Weiss and G. John Eikenberry, and numerous other scholars, including the infamous French novelist Céline, have been fashioned and shaped to conform with either liberalism or, to a lesser extent in America, socialism. And it was all brought about as a result of this one battle, the Battle of Berlin. And that's another one in the books for me. I want to apologize for my voice, but I've been fighting COVID or something for the last month. And it was either this or you wouldn't get a show this month. So I figured I'd give you a show. You know, when I told the producer of this show, Linda, that I was going to do a billion part series on the Battle of Berlin, she told me not to do it. But I felt called to do it anyway. I hope you've appreciated it. I'd like to think that 10 years from now, someone will stumble upon this series and really enjoy it all at once in one long paradigm into the Battle of Berlin. Remember to join us next month for the Battle of Adwa, when Ethiopia did what few colonial resistance movements ever achieved, defeated a European power in a large, decisive battle. And don't write in telling me about the Zulus and the Tao, or the Japanese versus the Russians in 1905. I'm aware of those cases. Still, Adwa is unique for a number of reasons, and we'll dive into it next month. And now, how can I end this epic and brutal, exhaustive history of the Battle of Berlin? It's occupied a large part of my life for over a year, sent books traveling across continents. The overworked librarians of the universities of Georgia must have bit their cheeks in anger when they saw yet another request from me, but we did not waste their time. Without them, the librarians of the world, especially those at the Paris Institute for Political Studies, this series would not have been possible. And I can tell you a lot of librarians get tired of seeing my smiling face, so I'm thankful for them. Are there any lessons to learn from this study of total destruction and fanatical defiance? Such a battle only occurs one or two times in the history of a civilization. It seems like I should say something fitting and appropriate to end this series recounting such an event. What can I say to you? If I were there with you, I'd wink at you right now and grab your shoulder like an old friend. I'd tell you, let's crack a beer together, brother. We haven't been drafted to fight in a hopeless war. There's food in our pantry. It keeps going up in price, but it's still there. Our daughters and sons are healthy and beautiful. Robert Putnam has proven that the glue of our societies is coming apart, but tonight the glue is here in my words, and here in this golden liquid I'm holding in my hand, bringing old friends together. Beneath the ashes, there's still a coal burning. There's still something of the West left. Tolkien told us that this day would come, and he told us how to move past this day as well. Quote, All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes, a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless shall again be king. End quote. Now, I know some of you, if we were having a beer, would ask me in private, why did I quote those lines from Tolkien? Do I like Hitler and Nazism? Do I want them to return? Hell no. God forbid. That is the last thing I ever hoped would happen. Hitler was a calamity upon the German people in particular and the Western world in general. He was a symptom 
of a sick civilization dislodged from all its foundations. Yet another one of the many utopias Western man is prone to create for himself since he cast away the laws and values of his forefathers. What do I mean? I mean there's a lot of frost withering away the tree of the Western world. You see it. You know it. One very small example is increased polarization of politics across the West. Another example is the inability to find workers. When I call my local Papa John's, I'm transferred to someone half a world away. It's cheaper than finding Americans to work. That's a small part of the frost. High prices, hot wars, they're part of the frost too. Deeper things, the breakdown of the family, divorce. America's de facto one-child policy. I'm talking to you, Washington, D.C. When I took my family to Washington and Alexandria, there were hardly any places for children to play. People looked at my family like we all had three heads. They were so unused to seeing children. And you should have seen the way the people acted towards us. They were about as welcoming as a devout fundamentalist greeting a pornography producer. I must have had five people comment about my inability to understand how birth control works. And my family's not even that big compared to our forefathers. For instance, Simo Heria, the greatest sniper in the world, came from a family of ten brothers and sisters. The only people who were nice to us were the immigrants cleaning the toilets and cooking the overpriced food the indebted citizens of Washington were consuming. And I was thankful for the immigrants' hospitality. Do not mistake me. I want to live in peace with them and the people ruling over them. But there's a lot of frost in Washington and Alexandria. A lot of fallow fields walking around in $200 outfits they can't afford. And I would tell you, with a wink and a smile, how deep are your roots? Because there's a cold wind blowing and many idols are going to be knocked over in the coming blizzard. So how deep are your roots? Then I'd buy you another beer and I'd leave you in peace with goodwill, regardless if you agree with me or not, because I value peace for its own sake. And after I left many of you, you would shake your head and you'd say to yourself, Dr. Wolf doesn't know what he's talking about. But a few of you would nod and say, he's right, he's like me. He still has roots that grow deep, where the soil is still rich, where the roots still reach the life-nourishing water. It's you, you few, you're my brothers. You long for something you can't even really describe, something past the freezing atmosphere all around you. Brother, the solution is not in violence, not in anger, not in utopian values, chasing dreams and clouds, but never engaging in sweating and grunting work. No, friends, the answer is down deep, deep towards the warm core that never fades, the light that can't be assaulted and can never go out. It's willfully choosing the good, turning away from the ever-present temptations all around you. You will fail sometimes. But after you fail, get up and start working again. Then you'll be rich. You'll start a fire that will beat back the frost. Then the crownless will once again be king. All right. I can see in my mind's eye all too many of you shaking your heads and saying, Dr. Wolf is crazy. Well, maybe you're right. But until next month, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Especially you, Jim.